Meanwhile, at the DC Nation, we are Night's <laughs> Entertainment. Here on the world, reasons for the world. None of the Robins ever complain. You're going to melt just like a cheap sandwich. And show you just how powerful I really am. Always hold on to all this. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways DC Nation, the podcast dedicated to reviewing all the amazing content DC Comics provides to you as its fans, most notably focusing on the TV shows Gotham, Flash, Arrow, Supergirl, and DC Legends of Tomorrow. With me as always is my co-host... Hey everybody, Michael here. On this week's episode, Nico and I cover episodes of Supergirl, the Flash Supergirl musical crossover, an Arrow episode, and of course DC's Legends of Tomorrow. But no Gotham, still as it is on its long winter hiatus until April. I'm starting to wonder if it's ever going to come back at all. (laughs) But before all that, we're going to kick things off with this week's news with Nico, DC headlines. So take it away, Nico. The Flash Season 4 will have a non-speedster big bad. At the most recent Paley Fest in Los Angeles, the heroes of the four DC Universe shows that air on the CW held court on the stage for the Heroes and Aliens panel, moderated by superfan and frequent Flash and Supergirl director Kevin Smith. Among the juicy tidbits that were dropped for the producers was the fact that next season they are also going to do another four-way crossover, which we'd already heard about, and and that this time the four-way crossover will be a true crossover as opposed to it being like 30 seconds long on the tag end of Supergirl this year. Maybe most telling, however, at least for the Flash fans, was that Andrew Kreisberg confirmed that the next season of The Flash will not have another speedster as the season's so-called big bad. After the reverse Flash, then Zoom, and now Savitar, the producers decided Barry needs a different kind of challenge in season four. So knowing this crucial piece of information, just who among the Flash's villains could be the big bad for season four if you eliminate all the speedsters as an option? Over the course of three seasons, The Flash has has used almost every major villain that any hero using the name The Flash has fought, and while it's possible that characters that have already been introduced in previous episodes like Grodd or Mirmaster could be made to be the season's main villain, it seems unlikely they'd use any character that was defeated in just a handful of episodes before as the season's main antagonist. However, there are a handful of villains that Flash has fought over the years in the pages of DC Comics that still haven't made it into the live-action series and could potentially be season 4's main bad guy. Curtis has their list of four main suspects straight from the pages of the comics who they thought could fit the bill. Follow the link in the ACC feed to see who they think could be next season's big bad. Justice League trailer finally arrives. The Justice League trailer is finally here. The first most notable feature of this trailer is an attempt to add some humor to the Batman character. The humor may well have been a mandate from above, but frankly, fans of Mallrats and Dogma know that Ben Affleck makes a great straight man when he's being a jerk, and the overriding impression here is that his Batman is going to be the foil to a more comedic Flash and Aquaman. Yes, Aquaman is deliberately amusing in this version, or as Batman calls him, the Aquaman. Jason Momoa's portrayal looks to be 
be considerably more lighthearted than his brooding skull in promotional photos has suggested. And rather than him being the butt of the jokes, super friend style, it looks like Batman will be for not having any superpowers beyond his bank account. We're still not really seeing any villain beyond the parademons that look just the way Bruce dreamed they would in the last movie, and given that Cyborg can generate a big gun and Aquaman can spear them with very little difficulty, there isn't much indication yet that the threat of them is anything more than the overwhelming numbers. But with more Amazons and Atlanteans being thrown into the mix, something big is coming. Can they sell us on Steppenwolf once he's ready to be unveiled? Or is there something more and secret coming? I guess we'll just have to wait and see. The Flash, Barry, and Iris wedding won't be until season 4. At the end of The Flash's musical crossover with Supergirl this week, Barry decided to prove his love for Iris by serenading her before getting down on one knee again. Only this time, Barry wasn't proposing to Iris to change the future. He was proposing to Iris because he wants to spend whatever future they have left together. Finding a way to save Iris from Savitar will be on the top of his happy couple's minds in the upcoming episodes, which means that wedding planning will have to wait a bit. Quote, I think the relationship aspect of West Allen is going to be on the back burner towards the end of the season, only because they have bigger issues to deal with and more important issues to deal with, Candace Patton says. You know, they're engaged, they're happy, but any kind of wedding details might have to wait until season four, if Iris makes it to season four. Of course she's going to make it to season four. The writers can't be that stupid to lose Candace Patton from the series. Not after Arrow lost Katie Cassidy and we all lost our minds. The Flash and Duddock to recur as quirky future genius. TV Line has learned that Anne Duddock is set to recur on the CW hit as Tracy Brand, who is described as the smorgasbord of quirky idiosyncrasies. Showing nary a hint of the greatness that people will celebrate her for in the future, Tracy will set out to find the genius she's destined to one day become. Duddock will first appear in episode 20. In addition to her run on House, Duddock's previous TV credits include Mad Men, Big Love, Covert Affairs, The Magicians, and Comedy Central's upcoming Hampton DeVille. Wonder Woman is officially rated PG-13. In news that should surprise no one, the Motion Picture Association of America just put out a bulletin officially declaring that Wonder Woman has been rated PG-13. Rated PG-13 for sequences of violence in action and some suggestive content. Sequences of violence in action lines up with the fight scenes you'd expect from Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman, and the suggestive content will definitely be from the scenes that explore her relationship with Steve Trevor, played by Chris Pine. Ratings. Flash ratings rise with musical. The Flash's musical mashup with Supergirl on Tuesday night delivered 2.7 million total viewers and a 1.0 rating per finals, rising 13% and a tenth week to week. TV Line readers gave the episode an average of an A-, while the ballad Running Home to You earned the highest marks of the five songs. Michael and I will discuss our thoughts on this in the Flash section, so make sure to listen in to that later in the episode. Supergirl promotes Katie McGrath, a.k.a. Lena Luthor, to series regular. Kara and Lena's friendship is being given a chance to thrive or go down in flames. We'll just have to wait and see on Supergirl. Recurring actress Katie McGrath has been promoted to a full-fledged series regular in Supergirl's third season. First introduced in the CW drama's second season premiere, McGrath plays Lena Luthor, the sister of legendary supervillain Lex Luthor. Though she appears to be shaking off the stigma that comes with being a Luthor, her mother Lillian, serving as the head of Cadmus, certainly isn't helping, as Lena's true intentions remain somewhat of a mystery. I think this is probably a good move for the series, but Supergirl needs to make some massive changes for season three to get me back on board. 
First Justice League poster released ahead of the trailer. Warner Brothers has released the first poster for Justice League. It's very much a teaser poster and features a cool look at the logo with the tagline Unite. And if you look at all the character posters and the teaser poster and put them all together, it makes a really cool widescreen poster. Follow the link in the ACC feed to see them all and then see them all stitched together to create a widescreen poster that is awesome. Arrow's Felicity suits up for Legends. It's Felicity Smoke like you've never seen her before when Arrow's least favorite Emily Bett Rickards makes a no longer surprise cameo on sister series Legends of Tomorrow. At Paley Face's DCTV event last weekend, Legends boss Mark Guggenheim told Deadline there was a surprise crossover coming, adding, quote, we've kept it under wraps, but there's a surprise cameo, surprise crossover moment in the penultimate episode, airing Tuesday, March 28th on The CW. Late Wednesday night Guggenheim went ahead and shared on Twitter the concept art for the said cameo by Arrow's Bet Richards whose Felicity will at long last wear a mask as part of the Legends newly unleashed Doom World reality rewritten by the Legion of Doom using the Spear of Destiny. At least this is only in an alternate reality and will not have long or real lasting effects and hopefully will be completely undone in the Arrow continuity because this will ruin Arrow and makes me hate the Felicity character and I don't want to do that. Anyway this is great news for some huge Felicity fans that have been clamoring for her to be in costume but many of us and I think all of us here at ATA and especially here on the DC Nation podcast this is pretty horrible news but that's the news with Nico DC headlines for this week all right now technically the Supergirl episode this week was considered part of the crossover but since it was only the last couple seconds of the episode I don't really consider the crossover the real part was the Flash episode which we'll get to in a moment but instead, this was almost like a standalone episode of Supergirl. So let's talk about that entitled Star-Crossed. A new villain comes to National City, putting Supergirl on high alert. At the same time, she faces an attack by the Music Meister. Meanwhile, Wynn's girlfriend Lyra gets Wynn in trouble with the law, and Maggie attempts to help Wynn, but old loyalties get in the way. This week's Supergirl was a watered-down CW version of Meet the Parents, even with the breakup and later in the Flash get-back-together aspect as well. And let's be clear, this was not a single lie that led to this breakup, but rather it just brought everything into focus when Kara realized that Monel had been lying to her about who he was. It's better to think about this breakup as a result of a collection of violations rather than this single lie being the one that broke the camel's back. Yes, this was the biggest lie of them all, but Kara has been dealing with a number of incidents when her trust had been abused by Monel. Monel, while attempting to grow throughout this season, is still basically a 15-year-old boy, and the way the CW has infected this show has done this story no favors. This is the sort of relationship issues you'd expect from a middle school relationship, and thus Kara should not be expected to put up with it. And she does it, kicking him to the curb in this episode. After some reflection, Kara breaking up with Monel isn't as confusing as the implication of the title of this episode, Star Crossed. It's a little bit of a pun, but when you think about the idea of star crossed lovers, you think of those tragic souls who are fated to love each other, but were 
we're always meant to be apart, even if it takes murder, suicide, and war to tear them away from each other. And while Kara and Monel are technically both from houses alike in stature, though it's questionable how dignified a house can be when it describes the institution of slavery as giving people new opportunities, but they're from houses th- that are similar stature on their worlds, who have quite a bit of disdain for each other stemming from an ancient grudge. These two are n- not really a Romeo and Juliet. Rather, I'm not sure Kara ever loved Monel. Not really. Now go with me on this for a second, because I know some people out there are really rooting for these two to work. But let me lay out my thoughts real quick. The the fount from which Kara draws most of her desire for Monel is that ever present Kryptonian trait, loneliness. Kara has basically rejected Monel for most of the season until a few episodes ago when she found herself alone again. Because Wynn and James were doing their guardian thing around National City, Alex has been shifting her Danvers sister conversations to Maggie, and John has been more aloof and distant than usual this season, or rather he's been focused on a budding relationship with Magan and other crises that the DEO has thrown his way. Monel honestly liked her, having as true feelings as he's capable of of and he followed her around like a puppy dog until she finally picked him up and so she did michael we've not been fans of this aspect of the show this season so you can comment on this week's relationship drama if you'd like but i'll ask you a different question instead and that's if you enjoyed the introduction of monel's parents that sparked this issue in the first place in this episode did you like them what do you think of monel's father being named largan instead of that being monel's real name like it is in the comics i just want to know any thoughts you have on Monel's parents and where that story could go. Yeah, it was definitely weird for me having Monel's father being named Largan instead of Monel, simply because Monel is a Kryptonian name, and for Mon to have that name instead of a more Daxmite name is somewhat strange in and of itself, especially since the House of El is clearly a Kryptonian family. So that's kind of just odd in my opinion, but I, we're probably the only ones who'd actually have an issue with that. As for Monel's parents themselves, I enjoyed the very Man of Steel esque introduction to them. I thought that that was very cool, the way that they communicated through all the televisions, kind of like Zod did in Man of Steel. I thought that was a good way to do it. But once Kara and Monel were on board the ship, I felt like there was a hidden agenda going on immediately. And I'm not sure we've seen the last of the King and Queen of Daxum. I'm I'm almost wondering if they take a Zod route going even further with the Man of Steel Parisons and maybe try and invade or attack Earth to get their son back. I don't really know. Oh, and I thought Kevin Sorbo's casting as Largan was amazing. Yeah, me too. And I'm interested in that idea that Largan is the father in the story and not Monel, like it was in the pre-crisis DC universe when when Superman found Monel and named him Monel, but his actual Daxum name was Largan. I- I'm wondering if this means anything or it's purely an Easter egg for us DC fans who are paying close attention. I just don't know if, if that's going to have some significance. And as I said, I really enjoyed Kevin Sorbo's portrayal of Largan, the King of Daxum, but I thought Terry Hatcher's Queen of Daxum was a little over the top and almost cartoonish in her blatant elitism. I know they are trying to show how much Monel has changed changed under the influence of Kara, but I thought the subtleness of Kevin Sorbo's performance was a better way to deal with this than the over-the-top hit-us-on-the-head of how bad Daxamites are of Terry Hatcher's character. Anyway, overall I thought it was good stuff, just a little on the nose at times. I also have a bad feeling that the Daxam royalty are not going to take the whole Monel refusing their request demand to go home with them to make Daxam great again, and they're going to become the new big bads for the rest 
rest of the season. And I say that because Terry Hatcher was listed as a villain when she was announced, so likely she'll be the new big bad. My only question is how this ties back to the other big bad of the season, Lillian Luther and Cadmus. Michael, how do you think all of this ties together and... How does the Queen of Daxum become the new big bad? Well, I think there are a lot of parallels between Terry Hatcher's queen and Lillian Luther. You know, they both have a child who has rejected them and their ideologies. They both want to control something or someone that they really have no business controlling. Yep. And they both are extremely dedicated individuals who will seem to do whatever it takes and hurt whoever it takes, including their husbands, possibly, to achieve their goal. Honestly, they're very similar characters. And if at the end of the season, Kara could get each of them to understand how similar they are, it could potentially end with Lillian and the Queen leaving their pursuits behind with Lillian realizing that aliens are just people and the queen realizing the same about humans and that if Monel has chosen to protect them then that's good enough for her at least that's my hopeful ending of this season it would be a much less bloody ending to these big bads if that's how they decide to go yeah and that's a great idea I I think it could be very interesting if it does go that route but I also think we could see it going the other way with them realizing they are similar and working together to rid the world of Supergirl thinking that if Supergirl is killed Monel will have no reason to stay on Earth, and from Cadmus's perspective, the death of Supergirl will mean that no one will be able to stop them. So, it could actually be the most bloody and deadly encounter of the series if Supergirl has to go up against possibly multiple Daxamites and Cadmus soldiers all at the same time, possibly Cyborg Superman as well. It, it, it could be huge. It really could blow up to a giant battle in the season finale. So, awesome. I could see it go either way, and really, either one could be really good for the story. Anyway, we've discussed that Supergirl might go the route of Valor, or where the Legion of Superheroes comes back in time and takes Monel to the future to become a hero on their team in the 30th and 31st centuries. I have a crackpot theory for me, Michael. Now that Supergirl and Monel have broken up and gotten back together in the Flash episode, the time is about right for the Legion to come in search of a hero to fill their ranks in the future. My theory is that the Legion comes and Monel chooses to go to the future to serve as as that hero in the next couple weeks inspired by Kara and Supergirl and this is unacceptable to his parents who then blame Supergirl for Monel leaving and ending their line of succession. This is my guess how the Daxamite royalty become the big bads. What do you think of that theory? I like that theory a lot. In fact, that makes a lot of sense to me as to why Queen would end up hating Supergirl so much because ultimately it would be because of Kara's influence that Monel wanted to become that hero in the first place, sacrificing his happiness with her to go save the world future. That actually makes a lot of sense to me and that would be a very strong motivation of the Daxamite royalty. I also am really hoping that the Legion arrives soon because I think that's ultimately where Mono will go anyway, even if it doesn't cause them to become big bads. And, you know, I could see him possibly going back to Daxam, I guess, but in reality, him going to the future to be his own hero in his own time would make a lot more sense and be a lot more fulfilling for his character. Plus, he'd finally be able to fly with the Legion flight ring, so that's pretty sweet, too. Yeah, exactly. Michael, we've had a complaint all season that this series has forgotten about James Olsen and Guardian, but this week we finally got a story arc that involved Guardian, and it was pretty sweet. His battle with Lyra's partners in the art theft was pretty awesome, but don't get me started on why the Lyra story arc and how Wynn just went with it, because I don't want to bitch about the CW aspect of this episode too much. Rather, let's talk about the Guardian aspect of the episode, and do you think this might mean that we're going to get more Guardian in the coming weeks? Is there any thoughts that they could bring James or Guardian 
Guardian into the official DEO team since he seems to head there after every mission. I know you and I originally talked about wanting to see Guardian deal with the street level crime and allow Kara to deal with the big bads and the alien threats to Earth and National City. Do you still want to see that distinction and separation or would you rather get to see more Guardian even if it means seeing him going up against some of the big bad villains and working with Kara and the DEO? If they keep him separate, could you see him and Maggie teaming up and working together and would that work? You know, I have no problem with Guardian officially joining the DEO or with him taking on galactic level threats alongside Supergirl, Jean, and Monel. In fact, I'd welcome that because I think that gives James something to do and allows him to be interactive with the rest of the cast, and I think that's awesome. But as you mentioned, I also really want to see him take on street level crime, and that Supergirl seems to overall have disregarded altogether. And you bringing up James working with Maggie makes a lot of sense to me because I think that's exactly the level of crime that Maggie deals with herself. You know, you have Alex who deals with all the DEO crime. Now you of Maggie as well, who deals with the street level crime, and I think if you have that um, relationship between her and Guardian, I think that I think that would be great, and I think we need that because I don't, again I don't think Supergirl is really dealing with that level of crime anymore because of all the galactic threats from space and from Cadmus. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Now, the final moments of the episode introduced Darren Chris as the villainous music meister who appeared to hypnotize Whammy Supergirl, sending her to an alternate plane where she became stuck in an old school movie musical before the music meister headed off on an interdimensional quest to track down the fastest man alive aka the flash michael what did you think of the introduction of the music meister i know we'll be talking about it much more in the flash section but just as an introduction what did you think did it instantly make you want to watch the flash episode the next night Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't watch any of these shows live simply because I don't have the time to, but when I find other times too throughout the week to sit down and watch all four of these shows, Supergirl is obviously the first one I watch because I do it in order, but once this episode of Supergirl finished, I immediately started watching The Flash because I just I wanted to see how it all turned out, and I was very pleasantly surprised, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I started watching it on Monday night, and as soon as it was over, I was like, oh man, I want to watch The Flash. That was <laughs> that was such a great, such a great kickoff to the to the flash episode and so yeah i I think you uh probably had the better experience getting to watch it right afterwards but was there anything else about this supergirl episode that you thought we should discuss before talking about the second half of the crossover no i think that about covers it okay then in that case we'll talk about that second half of the crossover although in reality it was the only part of the crossover since there was no true crossover in the supergirl episode but let's talk about the flash musical episode entitled duet my name is barry allen i am the fastest man alive Hank and Monel bring a comatose Kara to Earth One after the Music Meister says that he's coming to take on the Flash. Flash soon falls prey to the musical villain as well, and Barry and Kara find themselves trapped in a musical where the only way out is to finish the story. Michael, last week I said that we both missed the happy Barry of season one, to which I think you replied, or maybe it just came up in our discussion, that we actually missed the happy everyone from the Flash's first season. Powers were fresh and new, Barry was eating just mounds of burgers from Big Belly Burger. People did drunk karaoke. Funny movie references abounded as we wrapped our brains around the idea of a time-traveling speedster psychopath loving Ghostbusters. Season one was light, fun, and just plain hilarious at times. The show has maintained some of that fun with hilarious moments like Barry and Linda Park trading forced hero villain barbs in an effort to lure out Zoom last season, which might have been one of the funny highlights of season two for me. But the tonal drift 
has been steady as Zoom and Savitar each threaten some kind of disaster for Team Flash. This season's crystal clear threat of Savitar killing Iris has heightened the response from Team Flash, which has been a kind of dourness and pessimism regarding the situation. One of Flash's defining qualities at the onset was that it wasn't particularly grim, like Arrow, which kicked this universe off. And while the two shows still do feel tonally different, the space between them sometimes feels like it's narrowing, and I don't feel like it's a tone that completely suits the Flash. And yet, the writers and producers keep leaning into it. And you know what? This week's episode completely proves my point, because it was that fun, light, and it was a freaking musical on a superhero show, and it works so well. Michael, give me a sense of how you felt about the musical aspect of the show, the tone, and do you feel like the episode seemed like what this series should be week in, week out? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. The musical aspects really helped push Barry from the seriousness of the world, the current dark nature of his rivalry with Savitar, relationship with Iris, and the mistake he made with Flashpoint, and it threw him into a situation where he needed to realize that being an eternal optimist is the best thing about him, or for him in this case, because he really hasn't been this season. Also, going off of that discussion we had last week, as you mentioned, one of my biggest issues with the season and last of Flash is that I have felt like Barry hasn't been able to face his enemies on his own, something I think the Flash really needs to do. This week, Barry and Supergirl could not rely on their teams. They couldn't rely on tech support. They had to simply follow the script and figure it all out on their own, and I liked that a lot. I don't think Supergirl has that issue as much because I think Supergirl still is very much the leader of her show and still takes charge and still is the one in the fights every week, but Barry, I feel like sometimes gets knocked to the wayside because of everybody else in the supporting cast, who I love, but again, it's called The Flash. That's why I'm watching the show. Yeah, me too. With all the additions to Team Flash, which I actually love, there is a tendency to take a lot of the focus and onus off of the Flash to solve things and shifts a lot of that focus to Kid Flash, Cisco, Jesse Quick, and others. The Flash needs to be the hero of the Flash, and I like that this was the case this week, along with Supergirl being the hero as well. I think there is a difference when Oliver and Barry, or Barry or Kara, team up. You know, there. Than necessarily what we're saying about Barry needing to be the hero. If it's a team up with another titled character, it seems to work better in my mind. I'm Absolutely. glad. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm glad that they tilt the titled heroes are the focus of this crossover episode, and I think that's why it works so well. Yeah, Barry and Kara had to work together to to win this, but it was two major heroes going up against the villains in the musical or going up against following the script and everything and. That was, I think, why it really worked. Switching gears, the singing was all top-notch. The theme, the story, all of it worked very well and really made me happy. And I had a ton of fun this week watching Flash. With how much we've had issues with Supergirl this season, seeing her here on Flash with Barry, was just it just plain worked. Supergirl has just fit in this universe so well when Barry first crossed over to her Earth and then she came to help with the Dominators. It was all awesome. And now here, it was great again. I love the Kara and Barry relationship and friendship and wish we could get more of this than what we often get on Supergirl. So this seems to tell me that the issues with what we've had with the Supergirl show are not Melissa because she nails it when she crosses over. Anyway, I have to say Melissa's version of Moon River has to be my favorite 
song of the episode. Basically, she just nailed it. She really did. So, Michael, before I go any further about the music and the episode, I have to ask, what did you think of the music? The Supergirl and Flash crossover aspect of the episode, and what was your favorite song of the episode? You know, I thought the music was really good. I really did. Though my favorite song has got to be that Running Home to You, simply because that entire scene with Barry and Iris just tugged at my heartstrings. It really brought me back to where I've wanted them to be since, like, the pilot of this show. So that that was huge for me. I really enjoyed that. As for the Supergirl Flash crossovers in general, I love them. You know, having a four-way crossover like we did this season was really cool, and I really enjoyed that. Um, and, and that was an amazing experience for television and for superhero-related media in general. But I feel like certain characters got lost in that crossfire, whereas with a Flash-Supergirl crossover, it always turns out exactly as it should, with the title heroes working together, as we mentioned earlier, talking about what's going on with their own lives and overcoming any obstacle that gets in their way. I loved their first crossover last season on Supergirl. That was a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm really excited to see what they do next. Yeah, me too, because I love Kara in the Arrowverse. I think it just works. As I've said, I really enjoyed this week's episode and had a lot of fun with it. Buffy the Vampire Slayer practically wrote the book on how to do these sorts of episodes with the classic Once More with Feeling episode that literally changed how TV and musical episodes are seen. Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog changed web content forever with its musical and storytelling style. Some of those songs are consistently still in my weekly play mix. On the other end of the spectrum, Grey's Anatomy absolutely tanked their episode, and most people believe it was the worst episode in that series entire run. Supernatural threw a party to celebrate their musical episode. So it makes sense with how much I enjoyed Dr. Horrible and Buffy's musical episodes, I'd have high hopes for this week, which for the most part were met. My only issue was that none of the original songs really were all that catchy or enjoyable. The two best songs were covers of established songs with Melissa singing Moon River, like I mentioned before, and the entire nightclub scene singing put a little love in your heart which was a very close second place for me and was my absolute favorite musical moment from the episode because the choreography of that dance and all the singing was impressive and just plain fun plus i had to laugh when barry couldn't help but start dancing along with everyone plus it was so early in the episode barry and Kara still weren't used to being in a musical so the pure joy on their faces when the entire nightclub started singing and dancing just added to the fun and enjoyment of that scene michael what were your thoughts on the new and original songs in the episode am i being too critical or is it a shame that the best part of this episodes were covers i absolutely love a man's gotta do everyone's a hero my freeze ray and brand new day from dr horrible but i can't name a single original song from this episode besides the final one running home to you that you mentioned before what about you no i mean i couldn't name an original song besides that one either unless that super friend song was original because i thought that one might be yeah it was okay that i mean it makes sense. The lyrics seem to have been specifically tailored to that. So that that would make sense. But, you know, I think our love for Once More with Feeling and Dr. Horrible in some respects may be blinding us to how good this episode actually is because we expected the musical aspect of this episode to be bigger than it was. At least I did. I can't really speak for you, but I certainly did. And quite frankly, that wasn't the point. You know, Barry and Carr's love of musicals is the backdrop, yes. But as the music meister puts it, this was always about Barry and Carr getting over the things we hated about their relationships this season and getting back on the straight and narrow path of being superheroes. Granted, I would 
would have loved more music as well, and especially more original content to go along with it. But I'm also very happy with what we got this week. And I think even the covers were just done so well that if for some of them, if you had told me that they were covers, I don't know if I'd believe you at first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There. I mean, there was definitely a couple original songs in there. I just they weren't as catchy as as what I've I've come to expect from like Doctor Horrible or or something like that, where they were all original content. So right. I don't know. It, it, I'm not gonna go out and buy the the soundtrack to this this episode but i did really enjoy it so i don't want to harp on it too much because i'm just saying there wasn't anything that really caught my eye or really caught my ear to to say that with the any original content but i did really enjoy it I also really enjoyed the idea of forcing Kara and Barry to follow the script of the movie musical was a nice touch. They could easily have fallen prey to the trap of having Barry and Kara attempt to physically fight their way out of the musical and beat the hell out of the music meister, throw them in a cell, and go back to their, their respective Earths to nurse their broken hearts. But by following the script, Kara has to learn how to forgive something she struggled with in the past and not just with Monel, but has to learn how to forgive Monel for lying to her and and Barry had to learn that no matter what the future holds with Savitar's prophecy, he and Iris would face it together as a couple. It was a happy ending for both our heroes and the audience that I thought was a step up from the drama we got in the first half uh, or the Supergirl episode and was a nice touch for those of us who have had some issues with the dark and depressing seasons both of the shows have given us this year. We watch virtually every single comic book TV show here at ATA good or bad and the reflex of creators to make the characters of comic book stories dark and brooding can feel downright exhausting at times, especially with the characters like Superman, Supergirl, and The Flash who are meant to be the lighter, fun-loving, and hopeful characters in the DC universe. Now, some will say that these feelings are a result of an oversaturation of the comic book genre, something you will never hear me say because I don't believe it, but it may be more accurate to point out the excess of gritty comic book shows and movies that Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight spawned. Michael, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think the relationship stuff, something that has hampered our enjoyment of Supergirl all season, was handled better in this Flash episode? We both love the Dark Knight trilogy, but are too many comic book properties attempting to capture that dark and gritty aspect? And is that the problem with some of the comic book shows and movies that are meant to be light, bright, and fun? Well, to answer your first question, yes, I absolutely do think that the relationships were handled much better on The Flash this week than Supergirl has pretty much all season. And I don't know if that's a testament to the Flash writers themselves or if that's just we needed to remove ourselves completely from National City in order for Supergirl to think clearly. I don't I don't know why that is, but I definitely thought that was the case. As for the gritty aspects of these shows and movies, I don't think that the comic book properties in general do this necessarily because, I mean, look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. They're the furthest thing from dark and gritty. And, you know, even when they try, they're still light and fun. But I think DC properties have a hard time with this because they got the most success from the Dark Knight trilogy. In many respects, Arrow is just the Dark Knight trilogy television with Oliver Queen in the lead role instead of Bruce Wayne. And I know many people have an issue with that, and I do on occasion as well. But if you look at it from the WB and DC's perspective, it makes the most sense. You know, a small vote, the exception of season nine, you know, that was never a dark and brooding show. But And the Dark Knight films were, and DC wanted to capitalize that with Arrow. And I think overall they have. Season four was the most light season of Arrow, and it's by far the worst. So there is a point to them doing it that way. While on the other hand, I think DC is starting to realize that lighthearted films like Captain America, Thor, Spider-Man, and the Avengers do very well and are very 
very well received, which is why I think that shows like Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow, and The Flash were greenlit in the first place, because they want to capitalize on Marvel's success with their own properties, and they see that it doesn't have to be dark and rooting. But I also think this is why the WB and DC made the Green Lantern film the way they did, and quite frankly, if it had Marvel's name on it in the title, it would have been received better, I think. But regardless, that movie didn't do well either. So I think DC has a really hard time trying to figure out when they need to be dark and when they need to be light, because I don't think they, I don't think the executives necessarily understand the characters like we do, and like Marvel does. So I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, Batman, dark and gritty. Flash, Superman, light and bright. (laughs) That's what they should be focusing on. Absolutely. But with the release of the Justice League trailer, I think some of it is going to be light and bright because it sure seems like they are trying to take advantage of Ben Affleck's ability to be the straight man in comedy and so I think we're going to see a very fun Barry Allen attempt in that and then Arthur Curry is going to be funny as well and I think Jason Momoa is going to bring a good quality to that. I probably would never have said as a child oh I can't wait to see an Aquaman movie because I was never an Aquaman fan but I think I am going to (laughs) be very interested to see that Aquaman Aquaman film and Aquaman in the Justice League. So I think it'll be fun. And I think they might get the tone a little bit better in Justice League. It's still going to be a Snyder movie, so I'm not going to be 100% on board. And anytime Batman starts using a gun or shooting bullets from a gun on his Batmobile, I am not going to be on board with that. But I, I do think they're making a shift. And I think overall, the DC properties are going to start getting better and addressing some of these issues we've been having with them trying to go dark and gritty with everything and it maybe not working for some of the characters right and it works very well for batman especially like ben affleck's batman but you know the wonder woman movie does not look that way yeah absolutely wonder woman looks really really good and i am really excited for that and i think justice league like you mentioned even with that new trailer that just came out it looks very different than batman vs superman did and batman vs superman i think in some respects needed to be a dark movie because you needed to get into that because of the way people viewed man of steel and the way people view batman because of Nolan's trilogy. Mm-hmm. But now that Justice League is going to be there, now that, you know, Superman has died and is eventually going to come back, to honor his memory, they have decided to kind of take up his mantle and fight for him and in his name to a point. And I think in some respects, they've become lighter because of that. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I hope next season with The Flash, it, it's the light and bright show of this Arrowverse because I think that's what we're, we expect from Barry Allen. That's what we expect from The Flash. So I think getting back to that will be better. I mean, we are in the dark and brooding third season of every show, you know? That's the way virtually every show goes. But I, I really want to see it get back to the light and bright. And along those lines of the whole fun light aspect of this episode, I have a little fun fact about the episode that really made me love Grant Gustin even more. But during that song, Super Friend, there's a point where he starts tap dancing. Often in these sorts of shows, the actor can can't tap dance or at least not well enough to pass themselves off as a professional or someone in a musical and they have to dub over the footwork with audio from a real tap dancer to make it sound right but not this week as Grant Gustin's actual footwork and tap dancing was used in the episode you can tell if you watch really closely the audio matches perfectly with the movements something they really couldn't have faked so that was awesome Michael almost all of the singing and dancing scene in this episode was the actual cast doing it 
what was your favorite little bit of the singing or dancing that just made the episode knowing it was your favorite characters and actors actually doing the work? I mean, I also love that tap dancing scene. I thought that was great, but I also really liked when not Cisco and not when we're singing alongside each other. Yep. You know, I didn't know that either of them could sing. I had no clue. And seeing that was awesome, especially them both being the two sidekicks, if you will. I thought that was a very clever match and it was very fun to watch Kara and Barry look at them in disbelief like, we didn't know you could sing either. Yeah, I, I kind of want Barry to bring that back to Cisco in the real world now and be like, hey, quick question. Can you sing? Because in my mind, you can sing. <laughs> Caitlin, no, but you can for sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was so great. The episode, everything was just so much fun this week, but it ended on a happy note. And that was that Barry reproposed to Iris while singing Running Home to You. It was sweet. And as the only musical moment to happen in the real world and the only solo in the in the episode, it showed who the star of this series really is and wowed us to no end. The scene was simple, and his private concert for only Iris was meant to convey just how much he loved her. The only thing I can even say ruined this perfect moment was Candace Patton's a little too over-the-top reaction of surprise when he proposed again. Maybe that big of a reaction the first time, but he seriously did the same thing only an episode or two ago. <laughs> it's not that surprising. It was too much, but I'll allow it because how great the rest of the episode was for me. Michael, or any thoughts on Barry and Iris's reproposal and are you glad it seems this back and forth issue and the whole Barry needing time and space thing seems to be over well I mean to be fair that being said Barry did say last week that it was off and yeah. he kind of he kind of broke it off so Iris probably didn't expect anything from him when he walked in the door but you know as I said earlier this is where I've wanted Barry and Iris to be since the series began and so from that standpoint alone I was very happy with how it turned out this week and I thought this proposal was much better than the last one and it, it was much more memorable and i think that's that's one of the lighter tone things that i think we're going to be seeing more of next season or at least i hope we will and i i mean i loved it yeah and before we move on to arrow was there anything that i missed that we should talk about this week well two quick things one i really love the team up between kid flash marsha manhunter and vibe that was yeah. awesome that was so cool seeing them in action together i was not sure we would ever see marsha manhunter in action with anyone from the arrowverse and i was very glad we did but i also really enjoyed seeing stein and merlin this week in the musical even if it wasn't really them and also not malcolm's son being named tommy that talked to my heartstrings a little bit yeah that was a nice touch all right well if if there isn't anything else i think it might be time to move on to the arrow episode entitled capuchin Adrian tries to break Oliver, forcing him to confess the one thing he's never told anyone else. In the past, Oliver unleashes his inner darkness to take down Kovar once and for all. This week's Arrow is probably the most intense Arrow we've had in a long time, and certainly the best use of the flashbacks mixed with the present story since season two's finale unthinkable, at least in my opinion. I love this week's episode, and it might actually rank as my favorite so far this season, and I think a large part of that for me was because it was all about Oliver. Team Arrow, at least not until the very end, was not a part of this episode this week, making 
taking Oliver, not only the main protagonist, but actually the primary focus with no distractions, something we haven't seen in quite a while. Nico, did you like this? I mean, one of my biggest issues with the Arrowverse over the years has been that the, the whole team aspect of these shows and that it takes away from the individual aspect of either the Green Arrow or the Flash being able to take on challenges themselves. And personally, as I said earlier, I don't think Supergirl has this problem as Martian Manhunter and Guardian are used so sparingly. Arrow's first and second seasons are still my favorite seasons of the show, and a large part of that is due to Oliver, for the most part, handling Starling City at, as hmm, first as the hood and then as the Arrow solo. Sure, he had Felicity to help him with the tech and Diggle to help him whenever he needed backup. Even Roy and Sarah helped out on occasion, but Oliver was the primary focus of the show and the show's action. We saw that again here this week for, in my opinion, the first time in a very long time. Nico, what were your thoughts on this? Do you agree with my assessment of the Arrowverse shows, or do you think that there's merit to the way that they do things? Yeah, Michael, we discussed this in the Flash discussion a little, that we both think that part of the issue of the last few seasons here on Arrow and the last season of Flash could be that the focus was taken off of the main titled heroes and put onto the supporting cast and sidekicks or team members. Some of that is great stuff and absolutely needed to flesh out the other characters on the series, but unfortunately I feel there has been too much focus shifted off of the titled characters to the detriment of the series both here and on Flash. That was why this episode was so great because like you said, it was the first episode in a long time that focused specifically and only on Oliver and it showed, as I agree with you, that this was one of the best episodes of the season. But as I mentioned, they cannot completely go this route either and forget to do some character work with the other members of the teams or the shows will get stale and the team members will become purely 2D characters and we won't care about them as much anymore. So I think in reality, they just need to find a better balance with most of the focus being on the titled characters, but also adding elements of character study and development to team members. Basically, maybe if they got rid of the worst team member here, there would be more time to focus on Oliver and then one team member per week, like they did in that Wild Dog episode a few weeks ago that we really loved. But we both know they won't get rid of the usurper star on the series anytime soon, and it seems like they've even given her more story as she's going to ruin, or going to be in costume on DC Legends and possibly ruin that show as well, but I already discussed my distaste for that in the News with Nico section, so I won't rehash it here. Basically, I agree with you, Michael, this episode worked well because it shifted the focus to Oliver, and I hope there's more of this the rest of, and what the rest of the season looks like. Yeah, and you bring up a very good point. We do need those supporting characters. We do need to care about them. We do need them to be three-dimensional characters, but they need to take a backseat, and I agree with that as well. Yep. Now, in the flashbacks this week, which was actually the primary story, Anatoly and Oliver finally decide to take things to Kovar after Gregor's death. I've really been enjoying the Bratva plot this season because it gives us time to see, to really see how Oliver became the Hood, that serial killer vigilante that we met in season one, and at a faster rate than the last four seasons of flashbacks combined. We see here Oliver truly trying to separate himself from that something else he has created, that vigilante persona that only wants vengeance. Seeking Tayana's mother this week was great for continuity's sake, but she also served as a springboard for Oliver to embrace the Hood completely and become something that something else. Though I have to say it was heartbreaking when Oliver found her dead body and had to rush to, to save her and it found her dead already. It was horrible and I didn't like watching it. But, you know, we also finally see Oliver get his Brafa tattoo and become a Brafa captain after defeating Kovar. So that's really cool. And rescuing Anatoly and Brafa and securing Russia from internal disaster. Nico, what were your thoughts on the flashbacks this week? Where do you think that they're going to go now? We've only got about six episodes left, give or take, this season. So what else does Oliver need to learn here in Russia before heading back to Lian Yu? I really enjoyed the fact that this week's episode was focused mostly on 
John Oliver. And part of that was that the flashbacks were actually the focus of the episode and the present were the cutaways, a reverse of how the series usually works. I thought that flip of style worked wonders in the way this episode felt and worked in telling the story. Now, as for where the flashbacks go from here, since next week's episode is going to focus almost entirely on Oliver and the Bratva in the present, which we'll discuss in a moment, my guess is that we will see Oliver leaving Russia and possibly finishing his training with Talia on Lian Yu before he is rescued in the season one premiere, but maybe not for a couple weeks before that happens. I also think that we will see plenty more Talia in the present, so it would make sense to also see her in the flashbacks to tie the past to the present. How that all works and ties together is just a guess at this point for me, but I'm hoping to see that that training on Lian Yu stuff before the season ends, and I'm really hoping for that Nissa and Talia confrontation in the present story arc we discussed last week, so if they go that route, then we'll probably see some flashbacks to Talia's training of Oliver in that episode as well. So you think he'll be on Lian Yu in the next episode or two? I I think before the season ends, obviously, but I think there's going to be some more stuff in Russia before he makes it back to Lian Yu, but I, I I could see it being three if there's six episodes left, three and three. But I'm not. I'm not even sure how how it's all going to break down. Yeah, I mean, I and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute. But I heard a theory on Twitter the other day that someone was saying that much like how season two's finale goes with Oliver fighting Slade in the presence and in the flashbacks, this person said that he thinks Prometheus will take Oliver to Leon Yu as opposed to fighting in Starling City and fight there with the flashbacks being Oliver fighting Kovar on Leon Yu in the flashbacks which I think could be a very interesting concept as well. Yeah. Speaking of that, at the end of this week's flashbacks, we see that Malcolm Merlin, who has recently been working with Kovar, has helped revive Kovar, showing that much like Oliver not actually killing Malcolm at the end of season one, he didn't actually kill Kovar in the casino this week either. Nico, does this mean that Kovar will return in the present to face Oliver now that Prometheus has what he wants from him, or will Kovar's story continue in the flashbacks instead? Yeah, so that's definitely a possibility that we'll see Kovar's revenge in the flashbacks before Oliver leaves Russia for Leanne you like i was mentioning that could be in the next couple episodes but we could also see him fulfill the exact opposite of our initial theories from the very first or second episode of the season when we thought that kovar or his son was prometheus and chase was vigilante what if now that it was shown that chase was actually prometheus could that mean that kovar is vigilante i actually hope not (laughs) because i still like the idea of the stolen identity theory we came up with last week where the true adrian chase has become become vigilante to get his identity back from Prometheus, who he thought initially maybe it was the Green Arrow had stolen his identity. Anyway, I hope we get to see Kovar in the flashbacks instead, and that story is the focus of the flashbacks for a few more episodes, because I think it was I think it has been the best flashback sequence this year since the first season, so I'd, I'd like to see more of that before this, scene is, this season finishes up and we go a new route with the flashbacks next season. Yeah, absolutely, I can agree with that. And uh, yeah, I want that our vigilante theory to be true. Yeah, That would be much better. Now, speaking of the present, with Oliver and Chains all episode, Prometheus taunts Oliver throughout this entire episode through our cutaways, telling him that it can all end if he confesses a secret, a secret that not even Thea, Diggle, or Felicity know. After days of torture and taunting, Chase puts Oliver in a room with Evelyn, making one of them kill the other. And I'll be honest, I actually believe that Evelyn was hurt and sorry and just wanted to get away from Prometheus, but I was dead wrong. Chase made it look like he had killed Evelyn to make Oliver reveal his true nature, the something else that he created in his five years in hell. And as it turns out, Oliver's secret is that he actually likes killing. And in hindsight, this makes a lot of sense. Season one now makes a lot of sense. Killing the Count, killing Raish, 
makes a lot of sense. Killing Damian Dark makes sense. And even killing those criminals for knowing his secret at the first episode of this season, where he didn't really have to, makes sense. Oliver likes to kill. The flashbacks have been showing us this all season, and especially in this week's episode. And Oliver's actions over the past few years have shown us this as well. And quite frankly, it took until the flashback scene where Oliver skinned a guy for me to realize that that's the secret Chase had been wanting Oliver to confess to him. Nico, what do you think about this? Do you honestly think Oliver likes it? Is there truly a dark part of Oliver that wants to stay in the darkness? What does this mean for Oliver going forward? I mean, quite frankly, I kind of see it going back to my fall of the Green Arrow theory with Oliver confessing his crimes to the SCPD and revealing his identity as the Green Arrow. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, it really seems like your idea of the fall of the Green Arrow story is where this is all leading. And that means that Oliver revealing himself as the Green Arrow does seem more than likely where the Green Arrow story is heading, ultimately completing the arc started in the in this episode where Oliver dissolves Team Arrow and decides he's done being the Green Arrow. We'll discuss that in a moment, but as for your question about the revelation of Oliver's secret in this episode that he enjoys killing, well, I'm in the same boat as you, Michael. I was surprised by it in the in the initial episode, but it makes a whole lot of sense now that we know it. This is actually something this series has done from the very beginning very well, setting this up, assuming this was a story arc that was always intended to be told, which in my mind it is because how much this season mirrors and lines up with the first season and where Oliver was at the beginning of the series and the flashbacks this season showing how he got there, it's all too well matched and linked to have not been the plan from the very beginning. Anyway, it all makes sense and is one of those revelations that you might never come up with on your own, but as soon as you hear it or see it, it makes all the sense in the world. And we've got to give the writers and producers credit for setting it up so well that it was like, oh, duh, that makes total sense. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, you know, we give the writers of Arrow a lot of crap. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, I definitely have the past two years because I don't think the past two seasons are nearly as good as the first two. But this season has been so good and it's tied everything together, not just from the first season, not just from the second, but all four seasons previously. Yep. And it really brings Oliver's story full circle. And I think this episode, in a lot of ways, is kind of the pinnacle moment where we can finally see that happening. Now, Prometheus fulfills his promise and lets Oliver go once he confesses his secret. And as Oliver stumbles back into the Arrow Cave, as you mentioned, Nico, he tells Diggle, Felicity, and Curtis that it's over. His crusade is done. Team Arrow is done. It's finished. Nico, what does this mean for the rest of the season? Will this team actually stay disbanded with Oliver eventually picking up the bow again solo? Or will he allow them back in when the time is right? You know, we both know that he won't stop being the Green Arrow entirely because there wouldn't be a show otherwise. But could he stop receiving the team's help altogether? Well, from what I can tell, he's going back to the Bratva next week and he's going to bring in the U.S. arm of the Bratva to fight Prometheus and stop him and maybe even kill him to stop him. And that is going to cause major issues with Diggle and Oliver and possibly the rest of the team as well when they realize that Oliver has turned to gangsters to stop Prometheus rather than them. I think this will tie back to the flashbacks as well, so it'll make sense in the end, I'm sure. I, I still think there has to be some tie back to Lian Yu and Talia, but I'd like to see more of the Kovar story as well, so maybe where Oliver goes now in the present will somehow tie back to what he did in Russia back in the flashbacks. So I don't know what that's going to be, so I can't really say how that's going to tie back to the Bratva story next week, but you're correct that there is no way that Oliver can stop being the Green Arrow. He may try to stop, but ultimately is who he is, and that won't stop just because he realized that some part of him enjoys killing. This is just another part of his darkness that he has to keep in check, and is part of him being a hero. Keeping that inner demon from 
coming out and affecting who he is, that's part of him being a hero. That's how I see it anyway. I think it mirrors in a lot of ways, and I think we've always known this with the show going, even from the pilot, but I think it mirrors Batman in a lot of ways in the sense that, you know, Bruce Wayne isn't is, is kind of fake. He's, he's not really real. Batman is the real identity. Right. And he allows Bruce Wayne to exist because he needs to find that balance for Batman, because if it's just Batman, then he's not, then ultimately he's nothing. And I think with Oliver, it's the same way, whereas Oliver may truly be the actual identity, but the Green Arrow is the thing that, you know, allows him to do what he really desires to from deep down. And that's kind of a scary thought in some ways, but there's a lot of parallels here between Batman and Green Arrow with the exception of the killing aspect of it. Yeah, and I think when we when we started the series, it was much more that the Green Arrow or the Hood at that time was the true identity and Oliver was the facade. But yes. as he's healed, as he's found a family and friends and sort of strived to be a better person and a real person, some of that Oliver personality has come back. And so the balance is becoming much better that the Oliver character might ultimately at the end of the series be the real character and the Green Arrow is the secret identity or the the identity takes on to fight crime as opposed to being the other way around. But at the very beginning, it absolutely was like the Batman where Batman was real and Bruce Wayne was the facade. Mm -hmm. And, And going off of that, I think you're absolutely right that Oliver himself is starting to become the one who is fighting these criminals as well through through more legal and judicial means as the mayor and yep. i think that's a very important distinct way to distinguish him from batman because yep. oliver queen in the comic books has always himself been a crusader of social justice as well as being the green arrow who's a superhero fighting for the sake of justice so there's always been both aspects of the of his personality that have been fighting for the rights and lives of others whereas with batman bruce wayne is really just a cover so that he can be batman as full-time as he can and i think that's where that's where there's a disconnect but yep. i think there needs to be is there anything else we missed in narrow this week that you wanted to talk about nico no i think we covered it all all right if that's the case then we'll move on to dc's legends of tomorrow with the 15th episode of season two entitled fellowship of the spear The Legends devise a plan to retrieve the last remaining fragment of the Spear of Destiny from the Legion of Doom when they find themselves in France at the height of World War I and faced with the knowledge that they must destroy the mystical object. They enlist the help of a soldier named John Renald Renewal Tolkien and learn that the Spear is leading them into the heart of the war. Meanwhile, the team must all resist the temptation of the Spear and a former teammate returns. On this week's Legends of Tomorrow, the Legends have to travel to World War I in order to retrieve the blood of Jesus from the body of an old crusader in order to destroy the Spear of Destiny. We find out that the blood of Christ, the object of the Spear's power, is also the only thing that can destroy the weapon. This actually makes a lot of sense, as scripture says that freedom from sin and God's wrath can only come through receiving the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, by faith. So obviously there is a lot of power in his blood as it is. One of my favorite scenes this week was when Sarah tells Gideon that in order to set a course for the crucifixion of Jesus, and Rip immediately puts a pause on that order. Besides the fact that I don't believe the Legends of Tomorrow 
Morrow could pull off the death of Christ well, and I probably would have gotten upset had they tried. I also was glad that Rip's hesitation to go back in time to a time so significant was there because in classic DC Comics lore, there are very specific moments in history, like creation, for example, that groups like the Time Masters of the Green Lantern Corps are not allowed to visit. In fact, have strict laws against anyone visiting. Often when visitations to those time periods do occur, it's by villains who are attempting to rewrite reality like the Legion of Doom have been this season. There's a great part at the end of the Justice League Unlimited episode Once Upon a Future Thing Part 2 where Batman and Green Lantern are chasing Kronos to the beginning of time because Kronos is trying to remake himself as God. And the Green Lantern tells Batman that the Green Lanterns have a legend that nobody is supposed to see the beginning of time for that reason. This being said, it was definitely a good thing for the Legends writers to recognize this and to keep the story from heading down that direction, though it would have been an incredibly easy road for them to head down. Because I think this causes them to think outside of the box and really figure out what this show can feasibly do and where they want it to go. Nico, what are your thoughts on this week's time period, the Time Master's Time Law, and the revelation that the blood of Christ is needed to destroy the spirit of destiny? Yeah, Michael, this is a smart move to not go and actually forbid anyone from going to the crucifixion. And really, Rip says that the entire birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are off limits. This follows a similar thing that Doctor Who does with these sort of unchangeable times in human history. In Doctor Who, the Doctor often talks about times and events that are time-locked, meaning that they are impossible to access because God, the universe, and time itself does not want people or time lords or time masters or villains able to mess with these times. This was a genius move by one of the early Doctor Who writers that explained why the Doctor never attended or visited certain things in history like the birth of Christ or the crucifixion. I like the idea that the legends was not this series was not stupid enough to mess with something like the life of Christ because that would have really ticked me off especially the way this show so blatantly messes with the timeline and events some stupid writer would probably wouldn't be able to help himself changing something and making it so Ray was the 13th disciple or Sarah was Mary Magdalene or some BS like that that would have really been highly blasphemous and pissed both of us off. Anyway, the Time Master law on the matter was a smart move, and I liked it. As for what we actually saw this week, I really loved the Tolkien aspect of this episode and how they slipped subtle Lord of the Rings aspects into this episode to imply this experience with the legends was the basis of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Hobbit, and the entirety of the Middle-Earth universe. I love those books and films, and it was fun, much like the Lucas episode a few weeks ago, to play with that in a fun way. Plus, the battle in the episode served to incorporate the 19th 14 Christmas Day truce idea as well, which was really interesting as as well. Really, this was one of the best historically interesting stories this season for me. I completely agree. And as someone who knows very little about World War One, I'm really glad that a lot of the DC properties lately are actually tackling this war because it's it's educating me a little bit on what actually went on. You know, we're getting it here on Legends, and of course, Wonder Woman is set primarily during World World War One. So when that movie comes out, I'm going to be really excited to learn even more. Well, with the when DC and a lot of comic books started, it was in the late 30s and early 40s, so a lot of them dealt with World War II. So naturally, our our reference as kids growing up reading those stories and seeing a lot of that stuff, our focus was always on World War II. Plus, I mean, all the movies and everything of our parents' generation, yep. and then our you know we watched as kids with our parents often, was focused on World War II. So World War II has always been the 
primary focus of a lot of the media that you and I grew up on. So the World War One often gets lost in the battle or lost in the mix for that. So it was it is great that they are going back. And I actually thought Wonder Woman when I first saw it was going to be World War Two as well because there are a lot of World War Two Wonder Woman stories. But I, I'm I'm really glad it's World War One as well. And this was World War One because, like you said, we we just don't know enough about that war and it was it was the war to end all wars and it didn't end up being that you know because humans but at are, the time it was the biggest thing yeah it, it was and it, it decimated europe and then 20 years later it decimated europe again with world war Two and and the pacific as well as that that grew out of and became even bigger yeah absolutely now we've seen a lot of cool characters on legends this year including george lucas the knights of the round table and now J.R.R. tolkien tolkien is best known of course as you mentioned ego for writing the lord of the rings book series the hobbit and many other literary works involving Middle-earth, as well as being a Christian philosopher himself, which actually made him the best candidate to help the legends find the blood of Christ on the World War battlefield this episode. Nico, I loved all the little Lord of the Rings references this week, including the spear's hidden message being revealed by fire, much like the One Ring, as well as the persuasive pull the spear had over people like a Mayan Mick, kind of like what Gollum has to deal with, or even Bilbo with the ring, and Frodo, I guess, of course, as well. Did you have any favorite Tolkien references this week, and did you enjoy his appearance on this series? Yeah, once again, Michael, I jumped the gun a little bit on this and mentioned how much I loved this before, but let let me reiterate how much I love the fact that they slipped so many little references to the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit into the episode. The It all started when they first, when Mick lit up the, the spear with his gun and of course the hint at how to destroy it became, it burned through, or you could see the, the, the writing in the fire, much like the One Ring, as you mentioned. You know, this is one of the best episodes of the season because of all these cool little things that they did with Tolkien. I, I don't know that I had any one favorite one. I, I just really enjoyed the entire episode and Tolkien himself. I, I thought he was a great character in the episode. Yeah, I did too. And I would love to see him come back. I don't know how they could make that work, but I think that could be fun. Now, the biggest part of the episode for myself, and I would wager to guess you as well, Nico, with the exception of the Tolkien references, was the return of Leonard Snart, aka Captain Cold, who the Legion of Doom pulled from the timeline sometime right before the Legends of Tomorrow show began. This means that this version of Snart is a villain and is the central city rogue that we knew and loved from The Flash. Interestingly enough, when Cold and Heatwave first joined the Legends, it was because Cold wanted to, because he was inspired by The Flash's heroism. Now, Snart is adamantly against the Legends, and unlike Rip, who is just brainwashed into working with the Legion, Cold has willingly joined these villains because he desires to change reality for himself and retrieve his partner Mick, and of course, stick it to his future self by remaining on the side of the devil. My hope here now is with cold back that this version of Snart will continue being bad. And I know that sounds kind of weird to say, but I think in a lot of ways we've seen his redemption in Hero Story arc from Captain Cold, and we know that ultimately that's his destiny. But right now I think Central City needs Captain Cold to return as leader of the rogues and ultimately face the Flash once again. Nico, I don't know about you, but I almost see Snart as two different people. I see Captain Cold the rogue and Leonard Snart the legend. I really hope the writers see him that way as well, because I think that would be a great way to kind of balance between the two and maybe even have them both on the show at the same time at some point. I don't 
don't know. That is always a possibility with time travel. What were your thoughts on Cold's return to the series? Will he take back his place in the timeline? And will he end up rejoining the Legends? Or is he forever going to be with the Legion of Doom? You know, I really, I too really enjoyed this return. And I agree that I like seeing him as the rogue Captain Cold here, rather than the same Captain Cold Leonard Snart we've seen last season at the end of the his time on The Flash. I'm not opposed to seeing that story play out eventually again, but for a bit, I'd like to see the rogue version of Captain Cold. Snart, along with Rip, were my favorite characters last season. So I liked the Legends version of Snart, don't get me wrong, but I also really liked the villain Snart when he first showed up on The Flash. So I'd like to see that version of Captain Cold and Leonard Snart here for a while until maybe Mick plays the hero and turns him into the Snart we loved last season. I have a feeling that's actually where Mick's story is going to go, so it will be interesting to see that same story we saw last season almost in reverse. This time, Heatwave turning Captain Cold into a hero like Captain Cold did with Heatwave last year. Yeah, absolutely, and I like that idea a lot, and you know, going off of that, based on Cold's return, it was only a matter of time before Mick had to make that choice, He ulti- and ultimately he chose Snark. Truthfully, and Ray says this at the end of the episode, and I agree, the Legends never really trusted Mick. They always saw him as Heatwave, as the outlaw, and I really believe Mick wanted to change and be a legend, but he was pushed out. Many of the characters on the show have been wondering about their place on the team this season, and we see that Mick has realized that he was never really a part of it. Part of that probably stems from their betrayal last year, uh, when he ended up getting lost to the Time Masters and becoming Kronos, and of course, part of this is because of the way the Legends have treated him in Rip's absence this season. There are a lot of factors that go into it. Nico, did this betrayal come as a surprise to you? Do you think Mick can still be redeemed and join the Legends? What What are your thoughts? Do you have any extra thoughts on where his story is going? You know, I, I was not surprised because of exactly what you said. This team never truly accepted him as a team member. Snart, they absolutely did last season, but Heatwave was always only there because of Snart, and they needed bodies after Snart sacrificed himself last season, so they kind of kept him on despite not really ever trusting him. Amaya tried to make a connection with him earlier in the season and befriend him, but they just kind of abandoned that story arc midway through the season to focus on this Nate and Amaya BS instead. So really, the only friendship other than Snart that Mick had on the team was with Haircut slash Ray, and Ray has been questioning his place on the team as well, so he wasn't really able to make you know Heatwave feel accepted because he himself wasn't sure he felt accepted on the team. I was not surprised that Mick chose to side with Snart, his one true friend and partner his entire life. That is just the way you'd expect it to go, and what will actually be surprising will rather be probably starting next episode where Heatwave might actually go against Snart and play the hero once the Legion rewrites reality and it's not what Snart or Rory thought it would be and they have to change things or at least Mick decides he has to fix things as he might be the only one who can now. What I did think was interesting was that it was regrets from his life that ultimately convinced or tempted Mick to change his own reality and use the spear and ultimately hand it over to people who were going to use it and would allow him to change his own past. It means that Rory really wants to be someone new, maybe even be a hero, you know, or at least be a, a, a member of the team and be a true legend. So that's an interesting development for Heatwave. You're very right about that, and I didn't even think about it, but his motivations were not necessarily selfish in nature. They weren't for personal gain. They were for personal change. And that's very different. There's a difference there for sure. That's that's awesome. I didn't even think about it. Now, finally, I just wanted to briefly mention that the way 
share and rip balance power this week was actually really good. And my hope is that this will continue to get even better as the season wraps up. But do you have any other thoughts on this week's episode, Nico, before we move into the closing? Yeah, you know, it was much better this week. And I hope that maybe they are fixing this issue with the power struggle of who's the captain and everything. Obviously, we have said that we both think that Rip should be the captain, but there should also be some aspect of leadership for Sarah. And we discussed the idea that Rip leads the ship and makes the major decisions, but the Sarah actually leads the team in the field and on the away missions, as I put it in Star Trek terms. I really hope that's how it works out, but somehow I think it's too good to be true. <sighs> this week was much better than last or the one before, but ultimately I, I just don't think it's resolved. I think we're going to have this battle until they finally decide what they're going to do with Rip in the series. Well, I think we got about two more episodes this season, so hopefully they can resolve it in that time. Right. Other than that, I think uh, it's about time to move into the closing and talk about next week. On next week's episode, we continue our reviews of the spring 2017 TV season for DC Nation with an episode of Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, and a potentially terrible episode of DC Legends of Tomorrow in which Felicity from Arrow crosses over and suits up in costume. I am not looking forward to that. (laughs) No Gotham, which is still on a ridiculously long spring hiatus until late April, but it's going to be coming back soon, so... So make sure to join us next week for all of our shows that are actually airing. But for now, in most of the season, we're going to roll Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast. Get at our website, acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows. Available as their own individual programs. Get the iTunes store. Get Google Play store. Guys, for the podcast shows, cut our network. We have the DC Nation podcast. Located at dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Which reviews popular DC Comics related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast located at marvelversepodcast.acrosstheirways.com. Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheirways.com, which reviews Marvel Comics related TV shows and movies. And we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheirways.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheirways.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, and the mixed radio station, Code by Jack Stifle, Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. And if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace. Get the Windows Marketplace. Get a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Guys, for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. Got across their waves. There's no thought in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle. Got Google Plus. Or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Again, it's 773-809-3363. Also, when sending us an email, please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Get the subject line. Give you our sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God, the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego. 
this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Okay, so once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy, Wu Kim, Joshua Mercury, James Heffel, and Steve Nostro, I'm Nico Reifstek. And I'm Michael J. Petty. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys next week, and I hope you enjoyed another week of DC television. See ya. Can't say how the days will unfold Can't change what the future may hold But I want you in it Every hour, every minute This world can race by far too fast Hard to see while it's all flying past But it's clear now When you're standing here now I am meant to be wherever you are next to me All I wanna do Is come running home to you Come running home to you And all my life I promise to Keep running home to you Keep running home to you And I could see it Right from the start Right from the start That you would be Be my light in the dark Light in the dark Oh, you gave me no other choice But to love Now return to our regularly scheduled program.